Hello, everybody. Michael here with episode three of Conversation Starters. Thank you for listening. Uh, my guest today is Molly DeWolf Swenson. Molly and I met, oddly enough, as contestants on season 10 of American Idol. Her audition was actually broadcast quite heavily, so she, she's no more than a Google search away if you're interested in hearing her voice, which I often liken to soy milk because it's so goddamn creamy. But yeah, uh, all awful jokes aside, Molly is, from all angles, a bona fide badass chick. She has worked in the White House for the Obama administration, graduated from Harvard. She's given TED Talks and co-founded her current company, Riot, just spelled R-Y-O-T, which is essentially a media-based company whose mission is basically to make people aware of what's happening around the world in a way that actually affects us. So as you can imagine, this is incredibly difficult to do given that the marketplace of ideas in the world of news today is louder than it's ever been. I mean, just imagine, you know, standing in the middle of Wall Street yelling as hard as you can to no avail, and hopefully you'll be able to appreciate just how difficult of a task it is, especially for a small startup like Riot. You know, I mean, they're competing with CNN and Fox News, um, but they are using some incredible methods to gain traction, uh, one of them being virtual reality, which we get into in the conversation, so I don't want to talk too much about that right now, um, but it's super, super cool. Uh, and now, thankfully, Riot has joined forces with Huffington Post, who many of you have heard of, which is obviously a massive push in the right direction for them. Um, so the conversation starter for today is a short film that Molly and Riot put out called Body Team 12. It was nominated for an Oscar last year. I'll never forget proudly watching that moment when my favorite comedian, Louis C.K., announces their name. So that was really cool. Um, but yeah, if you have the time, it's only 13 minutes or so. I highly, highly urge you to go on HBO and watch it since it is an important part of our conversation today. Um, I, I have a link in the show notes that will take you right to it, or you can just search Body Team 12 and find it. Um, unfortunately, you do need an HBO membership to watch it. Um, so if you don't have an account or can't find a friend with an account, you can open an account for free as a trial and then cancel it after watching the movie without getting charged. But I understand that it's such a thing. And so if you really can't watch it but really want to understand this podcast, I'll give you a short brief of the film. But I should stress that I will not make the same impact on you that this film will. Um, but Body Team 12 is a documentary that was filmed in Liberia during the Ebola outbreak. Um, what makes this film so good, though, is that it's not just some informational documentary about the outbreak. By now, you all know what Ebola is. The film, uh, it really, it's about this 28-year-old woman named Garmai Sumo and dozens of other people like her who realized that somebody has to do something about this and decided to put her life in jeopardy every single day and volunteer herself to physically handling, collecting, and disposing of the bodies that were killed from Ebola just days after they got it, while simultaneously trying to educate the community about it. In a third world country where education and healthcare is literally among the lowest in the world. Just take a minute to think about that. Any of you listening who are in your 20s, just imagine how much courage that takes. It's, it's like, 
it's almost like some post-apocalyptic video game where you're the hero and you need to literally save the world by stopping this disease from spreading yourself. But it's real. It's not a video game. These are actual people with families that are stepping into hazmat suits and using nothing but trucks and almost archaic resources to deal with this. Not to mention doing this while fully understanding that the people she's disposing of are people with families who don't understand what's going on. You know, try imagine your your daughter or mother or brother being killed by some random sickness within days of getting it. A sickness that you don't understand and within hours, three or four people in hazmat suits come running into your home almost against your will and rip that person from you forever, telling you that they're going to incinerate your mother or brother and that a proper burial is not an option because A, there's no time, and B, it won't get rid of the virus in that person. Okay, I mean, just just imagine how you would react in that situation. And now flip the perspective and try to imagine what a woman like Garmai had to go through in disposing of these bodies, risking her life with the disease, but also risking being killed by the families she has to do this to every single day. So that is what Body Team 12 is about. Please watch it. Um, But yeah, in this podcast, we talk about all kinds of stuff because such is the nature of conversation. Um, I should mention this podcast is oddly going to start with the tail end of a half hour conversation Molly and I had about dating, which is why there is no, you know, formal hello or welcome in the beginning. But if it's of any value to, to you, let it be known that even women like Molly, who are changing the world, also have guy problems. I was, uh, I was going to leave that conversation in, but I wanted to get right down to the truly incredible shenanigans this woman's up to, so... I decided to cut out the entire first half hour of this. All right, this is officially the longest intro ever, so without further ado, I give you Molly Swenson. Now when I look when I look back at every single situation I was in, it was the most average situation ever. Every single situation. There was yeah. no like outland I've never dated anyone outlandish or anyone crazy ever. So and I every decision that was made, I would have made that decision if I were in their shoes. So like yeah. I think if there is something that's meant to be there that's more special than just any other relationship, I think it'll, yeah. it'll happen. Yeah, yeah. Know, and I, I'm more than anything now I'm yeah. just curious yeah I'm like what is gonna happen like can I flip to yeah. the end of this book and it's kind of fun yeah <laughs> but I can't yeah well, <laughs> um, are we supposed to talk about things other than like yeah. relationships <laughs> no, not, so the way it's gonna be framed it's gonna be funny because I'm gonna talk about you before uh, okay. the podcast starts so like all the introductions you're so like I'm, this girl's fucking crazy right. she went nuts on no this but I'm gonna ask people to watch Body Team 12 oh and so literally the, literally the way this works is people pause the podcast and then mm-hmm. consume whatever thing so like I would say like find a friend with an HBO account or right. or if you have one take 13 minutes and watch this thing yeah. and is it HBO? Mm-hmm. okay yeah and then um, and then turn it back on so immediately they'll be it'll, it should be fresh in their minds mm-hmm. and then we're going to be talking about this <laughs> right, so like so, body collecting yeah, in Liberia body collecting to Liberia, like right. heartbreak in LA yeah which well, one is more yeah. <laughs> they're all one and the same it's in some weird way. way in some meta way yeah. they're all one yeah. and the same no but I wanted to ask you 
something that I found very interesting is, first of all, this doesn't actually seem to be about Ebola at all that much. I, is it because you guys are just assuming that people by now are very aware of Ebola and what it is and that that's not... Like, it's, it's really about the people that yeah. are taking on this, like, crisis. Yeah. Well, so what's interesting about all of Riot's documentaries, at least the first five of them, is we never set out to make a documentary when we made them, right? It was always okay, there's a humanitarian crisis or a natural disaster and we're responding to it as humanitarians and as journalists. And then we encounter a story that is just incredible human resilience or character and you can't not tell the story. And what it ends up being is a very individual, character-driven look at a crisis or a disaster through the eyes of this one person. So they're sort of the vehicle for the story. And the they make the whole thing relatable, right? Yeah. Where if you're just looking at death toll headlines and you're seeing yeah. catastrophic images of destruction post-disaster, that's not giving you a personal connection to yeah. the place. And so with Body Team 12, our co-founder David was out there embedded with the team of Red Cross volunteer body collectors in Monrovia at the height of the Ebola outbreak. Wow. And he went back three times or four times. And... Um, he was in a hazmat suit, filmed most of it with a GoPro, which is another just crazy thing, yeah. like technology. With a $300 camera, you can get nominated for an Oscar. Um, and he encountered this woman who, you know, obviously you watch it, and she is an outstanding female heroine. Jarmai, Jarmai. Garmai, Garmai, Garmai. Yeah, yeah, so Garmai, you know, 28-year-old single mom. Basically jeopardizing her life not just because of the proximity to the to the disease but also because of bodily harm right exactly like she's walking into strangers homes and trying to take away their dead family member like imagine like she says imagine how you would feel if someone was trying to do that and you had no idea who they were that was the most powerful part of the movie for me was that scene where she's trying to talk down those family members Mm -hmm. and like the truck's right there Mm -hmm. and from their perspective a truck rolled up and I mean, and and how quickly? I mean, once, once you're stricken with it, how quickly? Days. Days. So like, there is no processing time for this. So no. it's it's just like that is an element that's that's. I don't think people understand. I think you guys captured it in such a way where that's the last thing people are thinking about. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's yeah. a, again a matter of perspective, right? And for her, what she has to do in order to convince them to let her take the body is is zoom out. Right? Like, yes, you are stricken with grief because of the death of one of your family members, but think about the entire country of Liberia now. Yeah. And if we don't do this, the entire country is at risk. Yeah, it's okay. Um, And if we don't take it, then the country's at risk. And the reason that she's doing it is despite the fact that on a personal level she is put at risk. It's for the country. It's this patriotism that is just so so admirable right for from one perspective yeah it's the most dangerous job in the world from another it's the most rewarding and i think probably people going to the armed services feel the same way um in a lot of senses do you think and this is kind of a weird question but do you think it's a lost cause for a team a small team like hers i don't know how many are there how many other teams like i don't know how many total teams there there were um i think there were probably a couple dozen teams of 12. So is part of telling her story, in addition to just illustrating what a human being can do, is it also to try... uh, Because sometimes, uh, this was a question that was ruminating in my head the entire time, was 
what this woman is doing is unbelievable and I don't want it to be in vain. Yeah. Yes, it's going to touch people's hearts, but like... You're saying like a sort of a David and Goliath thing where like what she's actually doing Is what she's actually doing going to make a difference to the, like, are her efforts actually taming this giant epidemic? So her team and the teams like hers are the reason that the Ebola outbreak was contained. Oh, wow. Okay, good. Yeah, Yeah. so, you know, it went from a couple hundred cases to thousands and thousands of cases in the span of a couple weeks. Yeah. Uh, No one knew what it was, the education. It's really hard to sort of get that information out. But, like, I'm not exaggerating when I say that it's because of people like Garmai that... Ebola didn't become a much greater much bigger problem. catastrophe than it than it could have because she like if it wasn't for people like her who were literally risking their lives to go and educate the population and contain the disease to only the people who were dying from it incinerating yeah. the bodies testing them for it setting up an infrastructure where um, where people could learn about how it was contracted and how to avoid that. Yeah. If it hadn't been for literally dozens of individuals like her, yeah. it might have reached the states. It might have, you know, in more cases than it did. Yeah. It might have spread throughout Africa much faster. I mean, I read some interview where I think Bill Gates was saying that he, he thinks that's the most urgent threat to man that we are I- incredibly ill prepared for. Yeah. Is, is a, an outbreak, a virus outbreak. Yeah. And I think that. What's interesting, too, is the media's take on it all. I mean, part of the reason that we make documentary films is because we feel like currently the media is ill-equipped to communicate stories like this. Yeah. Because of what I was saying, right? That if you're just reading a headline about something that's happening 10,000 miles away and it's just a bunch of numbers and words on a page... It's just not physically possible for most people to feel a connection to that yeah. cause. Yeah. So how on earth can you expect people to be empathetic to it when you're not giving them the information in a medium that's going to let yeah. them connect to it? And that's part of why we got into virtual reality, too, Yeah. was because of the empathy that's generated when you feel proximity. Yeah to a place or to an issue. Um, it's just about impossible to be mad at someone if you're holding their hand, for instance. Right, right, and there are a lot of yeah. couples therapists that make couples do that in yeah. the session where you have to hold their hand. Or, yeah. you know, when you're in a fight with a friend or whoever, like, if yeah. you're actually standing right in front of them after some time has passed, like, it's much harder than if you're just texting back and forth angrily. Yeah. So, like, the closer you can bring people to the news that they're reading, the better chance you have of A, them understanding it, and B, them feeling compelled enough to want to get involved to prevent another outbreak like that happening. I'll never forget just the five-minute impact you made on me when when you brought those virtual headsets to the party. And I stood there in war-torn Syria for five minutes, surrounded by wine and, you know, liquor, and rubble. And, yeah, and rubble <laughs> and, like, s- alarms and sirens going yeah. off. And I just remember, like, standing there going, like, this is such an interesting experience. I look, Could you, like, talk a little bit about that mission, the virtual reality mission that you guys are doing? Because yeah. I think that needs to be said. So the first virtual reality piece that we ever shot was pretty basic. We had a friend of ours uh, who's a prison reform advocate build a solitary confinement cell in his backyard in Venice to put That's his so cool. friends in the... Okay. <laughs> just to basically get them to empathize with in a straight jacket. No, oh, <laughs> just, okay, just just in the just in the cell. So it's like a bed, a door, okay. a toilet. That's it. Yeah. Because he's like, most of us will never have the opportunity to be in a jail, let alone a solitary confinement cell. But yeah. like, 
it's one of the civil rights issues of our day yeah. is the prison industrial complex and the fact that like 80,000 Americans are in solitary confinement right now yeah. and we think that that in 2015, 2016 is the right way yeah. to punish or rehabilitate anyone. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. So um, we filmed in the middle of that room with a VR camera so when you put on the headset it feels like you're sitting in that room yeah. and then we had it narrated by a guy who'd been wrongfully convicted of murder. So sorry to cut you off, the subject, yeah. the person watching is in the room mm-hmm. or you're with someone else and that's no. and you're seeing how they You're gave. the person in the room. You're, you're the, the You're alone. Yeah. Okay. Um, and you get this voiceover that's done by this guy who was wrongfully convicted of murder, put into prison while he was in prison, killed a guy in self-defense, and then was put into solitary for years. Oh, my God. Wow. And he's walking you through how that happened. So an innocent man yeah. is in solitary confinement for yeah. years. Um, and he's like, at the end of the experience, he goes, in 15 seconds, you're going to be able to take off this headset, return to normal life. Imagine if you couldn't. Yeah. And yeah. everyone is looking around being like, oh, my God, if I couldn't take off this headset, I would go crazy yeah. or I would kill myself or any of the things that happen on a very regular basis to everyone who's put into solitary confinement. Yeah. And so we paired that because every single piece of content that we put out has a call to action at the end of it. Um, this case, we had a ACLU petition to ban youth solitary confinement, which there were no laws against at the time. We premiered it at Tribeca 2015 in April. Under 18 and or under... Um, under 18. Under 18, okay. Yeah, yeah. so any minors. Um, I didn't know that that was legal. It was, it's been, yeah, it was legal. Us and like two or three other countries with terrible human rights records are the only ones that allowed youth solitary confinement. And so that petition, what we saw was every single person took off the headset and signed the petition. Oh. Like, if I handed you that petition, it'd be like, ban uh, youth but- solitary confinement, you'd be like, yeah, okay, but like, I'm a little busy right now or whatever. <laughs> but like, you come out of that experience oh, yeah, and you question. are so fired up. Yeah. That you'll do anything, I yeah. ask, in particular one that has such a great obvious cause attached to it. So, yeah. you know, that petition and that whole campaign ended up making its way to the president. And Obama issued executive action to ban solitary confinement for youth and for people with disabilities yeah. um, in January. Oh, my God. And, you know, that was the moment at Tribeca, as we saw, like, physically putting headsets on people's faces and then handing the petition afterwards. Yeah. We saw a conversion rate from passive to active like passive viewer or participant into active um, at a higher rate than anything, any piece of film we'd ever made. And so we were like, oh, maybe we should start using virtual reality some more. And then 24 hours after the Tribeca award ceremony happened, the Nepal earthquake hit. And our co-founder was going out there anyway as an aid worker. He brought the camera with him, came back with the first immersive footage of a post-disaster zone. The one you saw from Aleppo was one of our world editor went to Aleppo, brought it out there, came back with the first... 360 footage of an active war zone. Wow. And we just decided that, oh my gosh, this is a way to get people to pay attention to things that they wouldn't otherwise pay attention to because it's in this brand new medium. There's yeah. a dearth of good content in the medium and it's like interesting technologically. And we're not numb to that medium yet. Right. Totally. We're yeah. not desensitized You're, to you it. You guys are like capitalizing on a new media that's exciting and fresh and fun. And not just that, like yeah. it actually impacts your brain differently. Oh, 100%. When you're in 100%. an immersive environment like that and you see someone make eye contact with you, your yeah. brain knows that there's not yeah. a person making eye contact with you, but your brain also doesn't know that there's not yeah. a person making eye contact you with you. You do. Your brain does. Yeah. It's almost like the th- your, your consciousness is aware Right. Of it, like I can't tell it. you how many times I've seen videos or even in person seen people who are in a virtual reality headset where it looks like they're on top of a cliff 
Yeah. And they know they're in the middle of a room in Venice, yeah. but you put them in that headset, they look like they're on top of a cliff, and you give them a little up. shove, and they freak oh, the fuck yeah. out. <laughs> I will show yeah. you these videos. They freak, like, scream bloody murder. Yeah. Because you can't yeah. tell your brain that what it's seeing isn't real. Yeah, yeah. As much as you want to. So there's, there's this incredible opportunity that we have to leverage new technology to get people to really, on a deep level, understand and connect with people around the world that they wouldn't so otherwise cool. get a chance this to This is like the with. coolest effort I've ever seen for this kind of thing. I mean, the, the impact this is making, I yeah. think, is like is enormous. And that's why, why we're yeah. so bullish on it for, for news in particular as a use case because yeah. news is happening all the time. It's constant content. Yeah. And also, everyone for centuries, arguably, has been trying to get closer to the story. Yeah. Right? If you think about how news started, right? There's a town crier and everyone gathers around. He's handing yeah. out newspapers to, like, you have radio and you're sitting in your living room and, like, immersing yourself in radio. And then all of a sudden there's television and there's 24-hour coverage. Yeah. And then you have news in your pocket all the time in your phone and there's live streaming like you're just trying to get closer to the story and yeah. immersive content like virtual reality and 360 video is the next step of that. Yeah. And so the reason Huffington Post acquired us is because in part they want to build out 360 production capabilities yeah. or VR production capabilities in all of their 15 international editions. Wow. Cuz they see yeah. The future. And they see a yeah. future that has immersive oh, yeah. content at the center of it. They don't want to compete with you. They want to yeah. work with you. They yeah. want to, they want to be the first ones there. They're, yeah. you know, they're digital natives as well. And we had yeah. offers from other larger, um, traditional media yeah. companies. And this was the, the only one that was really truly digital at yeah. heart. Um, yeah. and that, that matters as far as your ability to move quickly. How, so back to body team 12 for a second. Mm -hmm. How has that kind of affected you personally? All the tasks you're doing to make this thing accessible to people has just been, I mean, I'm sure like a mountain of administrative work and <laughs> phone calls and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So I, I imagine that it can be, after seeing the film so much and presenting it so much, I'm sure that it's, you can get a little bit desensitized to the actual content of it. You know, I think that Body Team 12 was a great example of one piece of content that became much bigger than the sum of its parts, if that yeah. makes sense. Like, 100%. it became... Like, all of a sudden, we got not just media talking about Ebola again, but A-listers in Hollywood, um, you know, lifestyle publications. Like, the fact that we attached Olivia Wilde as an executive producer, yeah. and she was an incredible spokesperson for the film, meant that we could tap into press and people that we wouldn't be able to with a normal film about Ebola. Yeah. The fact that it was 13 minutes long also was sort of an incredible thing. The fact we were the shortest film nominated this year by 10 or 15 minutes. Yeah. Um, and there were no other media companies nominated for an Oscar. So like to us, it was this incredible um, triumph of short form content, right? Yeah. That you can with a very short film say a lot say a lot yeah. and create this halo around it so the way we think about a lot of our content now is with this thing we're calling the halo effect where we'll have one core asset say which is either a VR film or a short documentary or a photo series or something like that and it's never just about that piece of content because you put that piece out and maybe people find it maybe they don't it's about what's the the impact around it that we can create mm. so with, with Body Team 12 every time we screened it for instance we had a fundraiser for Ebola orphans. 
right? So we raised enough money through these screenings to hire Garmai away from the Red Cross and have her run this Ebola Orphans Initiative. So wow. she she became the leader of this uh, of this initiative that's caring for the the kids whose parents she took away a year ago, yeah. and who were left with nothing wow. in a lot of cases. And so yeah. the idea wasn't, oh, okay, let's make a film about a bowl and get people to talk about it again. The, the idea was, what legacy can we create with it? Yeah. And that's something that we think about with with everything we, we really put time into. And yeah, there was certainly a lot of administrative work, and personally, like, I got I had a bucket list moment of it, which is that I got to go to the Oscars, and that was amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, but it really, to me, was just an incredible example of the impact a piece of content can have tangibly on people's lives. Yeah. Um, in particular, these Ebola orphans. That's incredible. How, what is the most urgent project you guys are working on right now oh, that you can man. talk about? Let me think. <laughs> um, the most urgent. You know, we... I wouldn't say it's urgent exactly, but it's time sensitive. Um, yeah. I'm going down to Rio this week for the Olympics. I guess by urgent, I meant more like most excited about having yeah. the most chips in sort of thing. Yeah. Well, so this one yeah. in Rio is going to be really interesting. So we're partnering up with Samsung yeah. um, to build a creator's house down in Rio. Now, we're not going to be covering the Olympics like a traditional news outlet would cover the Olympics. What we're yeah. trying to do is bring together young filmmakers, photographers, artists, <clears throat> musicians, and empower them with capture technology um, that Samsung's providing. So like phones that have cameras on them, 360 cameras, and have them go and capture peripheral to the Olympics, what makes Rio, Rio. And that's, mm. you know, different sort of street art, that's um, sports that aren't in the Olympics, like surfing and skateboarding and that's like looking at incredible underground music scene down there there's political things that are happening that are crazy with the indigenous people around there and with oil companies and energy companies and so what we want to what we want to do is figure out what the new whether creators like that can also be journalists right like what does the new class of journalists look like yeah in the world, right? Can yeah. do they have to have a traditional journalism background to be effective storyteller, storytelling journalists? Yeah. Um, and also, like, you know, the same way that Red Bull Media and GoPro have this incredible relationship where there's a piece of hardware, a capture technology hardware, yeah. and an incredible network of explorers and athletes and creators doing amazing things. Yeah. How do we use those to enable one another? And right. we want Riot and Samsung to be sort of the next Very generation cool. of that. And Samsung, I mean, most people associate Samsung with the phone, right? Yeah. So what That's most people don't realize is that they're the second largest technology company in the world yeah. after Apple. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they have not only, you know, their phones, the galaxies and whatever else, yeah. but they also have right now one of the best prosumer 360 cameras available that's okay. like a little handheld 360 camera that self-stitches you can control it with your phone that's awesome um which is amazing and so they're also just they also have the top of the line what you watched the vr on the first time i showed it to you was a samsung gear vr yeah so that was a headset that samsung makes and a samsung phone in the front of it so the best the most immersive uh cell phone headset is Samsung also. Um, yeah. So there's the head-mounted displays that are linked up to computers and have their own operating systems like the Oculus yeah. and the HTC Vive. And, um, but Samsung makes the top-of-the-line 
Because part of it is also to get, like when we when we all think of GoPro, we obviously think of the cameras, but we think uh, even without Red Bull, everyone I think always associated it with going out and doing cool shit to film. And then Red Bull just, I mean, being the company that Red Bull is, it was just a perfect cross branding. So I guess what I'm wondering is like how, or is that what you're saying you're trying to figure out now is how to get Samsung out of that just like this Best Buy-ish vibe and mm-hmm. make it more of a humanitarian philanthropic. Yeah, I mean, I think it's about how do we get the latest and greatest capture technology in the hands of the people with the best access. So like okay, you think okay, about okay. Red Bull and GoPro, it's like the access was surfers and mountain yeah. bikers and people doing extreme sports shit, jumping right. out of planes and all that. And this is for world and travelers is, who want to go to yeah, war zones. Yeah, if you're like, an, you're like a world traveler and you're a humanitarian and you're a filmmaker and you're an activist... Like, what's going to be the tool that best lets you bring your story to the people who care? That's great. Um, And what's great about Samsung is that they have not only the capture technology, but also the distribution and consumption tools that are top of the line, too. So, like, what you're creating with and what you're consuming with can be the same device or the same company. And so there's this ecosystem there that we're trying to... To use. To ex- I would say exploit because like we want to use all of it and yeah. we want to max it out and break it, figure out what works, figure out what doesn't work, Rightfully and so. actually help them develop their products based on yeah. how we're using them. Kind of sounds like a closed and shut deal to me. Like you know what I mean? Like I just I don't <laughs> yeah, see. Uh, I, I might just not be smart enough to see where the flaws are, but I think that they, there's nothing that could go. It only it seems like one of the most win-win things I've ever mm-hmm. heard of. Yeah, <laughs> so well, we see, we tend to think so. Hopefully, the CMO listens to this podcast. Well, feel free to send it to him. But for you, for you, you're like I want to talk about your life right now. I think it's you're such a cool example of somebody who you can you can do something that touches people's people's hearts so much. But it's always interesting to see, like, the person who's doing it. By the way, what's your, like, official title right now with Riot? Oh, so as of the acquisition, I'm now chief marketing officer. So... Hell yeah. That... I was chief operating officer for the last, like, three years as we grew and through the acquisition. And I was... They wanted me to be chief revenue officer and focused on, like, everything bringing money in, and I said no. I'm not a pro. Um, yeah. I was also like, I don't want revenue in the title or sales in the title because yeah. it just feels predatory. And um, retail-y. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so, chief so chief marketing officer, officer. which yeah. just means that I'm, I'm responsible for a lot of the partnerships and revenue-generating activity and also just, like, what Riot looks like to the world, um, how we get on the platforms so, that are going to allow the most people to see our content. Humongous deal. Yeah. Yeah. So... Having that position and doing everything that you're doing, do you feel like you have a chance to work on, to, to quiet your mind a little bit? I mean, that sounds like so, it sounds so challenging. Like, how much time do you have to yourself? Um, what's really really nice about post-acquisition life is that you're not worried about the company running out of money and no one having a job anymore. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. that used to take up a lot of my Psychic mental energy. energy. Yeah. yeah, was just being afraid that we were going to fail. I'm not afraid we're going to fail. Yeah. Um, And so that's opened up some brain capacity and creative energy for me to expend in other ways, which is really exciting for me because, as you know, like it's been four or five years since I've actually done music in any way, really. You know, we'll sing at a wedding here and there, but, like, other than that, (laughs) I, I haven't. And, you know, I think also for the last three years being in the chief operating officer role, I very necessarily had to 
own all the non-creative parts of building Riot. And I had okay. to do that to balance out my co-founder, Bryn, who's an incredible creative, but it also gave me some insecurities about my creative abilities and whether I was inherently creative or not. Because hmm. if I'm gravitating towards a non-creative role and I can do it successfully, does that mean, that you're not therefore, creative. I'm not a creative? Yeah, yeah. And so I... Um, that was another reason that the chief marketing officer role was appealing to me is because it allowed for some more creativity yeah. and allowed for, for me to explore that a little bit more. And yeah. so now I'd say really in the last month is sort of the first time in years where I've been dedicating time to creative pursuits. And that is a combination of things like writing and singing and recording and drawing and painting and like, doing a lot of these you do things. that you paint now so i've started painting with my non-dominant hand cool because for the same reasons that you were talking about like oh if i like smoke or whatever before i get creative like i'm not blocking myself as much like i'm yeah. not as big a critic i'm right. not you don't as, go to your normal rules and right yeah. exactly and so doing this with my non-dominant hand both philosophically because it's like unlocking your right brain which is your creative side as a yeah. side of your body with your heart um it's a very unexercised side of me yeah Philosophically, I'd say, but also it just means that I'm not as hard on myself. Yeah. Whereas, like, if I'm drawing with my right hand, I'm like, why the fuck aren't you Michelangelo right yeah. now? <laughs> and right. I get pissed off when whatever I'm drawing doesn't look how it is in my head. But when I'm using my left hand, I give myself more leeway and I'm more forgiving. That's so cool. And so I've started, yeah, drawing and. I'm and reading a book right now called Flow by mm. this guy named Milyahi Sik Milyahin or something like that. It's like this crazy, he's like this uh, Russian thinker. I'll call him a Russian thinker. And um, the book is all about just finding flow experiences and how mm. to harness flow experiences. We all have them. We just yeah. don't, we don't realize how, that we can harness them. And it sounds like, it, and it is all about finding that perfect balance of something that challenges you, but where you're being rewarded enough where you want to continue and, if you're actually having a flow experience, which I'm sure you know about, then you, the object of time goes away. The, I mean, you are completely consumed in what you're doing and you're forgetting about everything else. And I think that that's, that's such a creative way to find that, is to paint with your left hand. It's such a unique challenge for your body. And it's also like um, creating new neural pathways. So it's an intellectual mm -hmm. exercise also. And yeah. I was talking with someone recently who had a friend who was diagnosed with MS. And basically what that does is it it breaks down neural pathways to the point where like you eventually can't remember how to lift up a cup of coffee to have a sip because yeah. your brain has forgotten that. And so that. what the doctor prescribed to him was to start doing things with non-dominant sides of your body. So like yeah. every time you walk up a flight of stairs, you're going to start with the same foot. Right. Think about doing that with the other foot. Every time you drink a cup of coffee, don't not only do it with the other hand, but tap with your finger mm. while you're doing it. And so does MS affect one side of the brain? Only one side of the brain no, when it I think comes it's on. No, it's unilateral. Um, but it's, but it's about. But they don't decay at the same rate if you're learning something new. So like the more. And so it's still gonna happen. You're just prolonging. It's still gonna happen, but you're you're creating new pathways for yourself that aren't going to decay at the same mm -hmm. rate that the ones you learned early are. That's fascinating. And so, it also feels like an intellectual pursuit and like mental exercise yeah. to be exercising. This creative energy yeah. um and it's yeah it's the flow thing is real i think that i'm also such a perfectionist or i had i was yeah. i was terrible when i was younger i was such a perfectionist 
I would get so upset if I messed anything up and I still am hard on myself. I'm my own worst critic. And so that's an, it's important to combat those thinking instincts. Are you harder on yourself with music than you are with your job right now? That's a good question. I, I don't know. I, I think I am. I think I'm harder on myself because I feel like, and this is a bit residual from my upbringing and how I started singing. And I know we've talked about this where like I was in this singing group for from the time I was 13 until I was 18, where we were given the music of, you know, Aretha Franklin and the Supremes and Linda Ronstadt and Gladys Knight and Mm -hmm. Carly Simon and all these greats, Bonnie Raitt, and told to learn to sing how they sing and not to deviate from what they did because you're not as good as them. Yeah. And, you know, interestingly, when I started drawing when I was little and I was, like, sort of free-flowing, drawing, whatever, when I learned that I could trace Disney characters and draw them better <laughs> Me than... Me too! I did Wild <laughs> Coyote. I learned how to do, yeah, yeah. like, the Coyote. Then, yeah. like, I just started doing that because I was better yeah. when I was tracing over someone else's work. And same yeah. came with singing where I was like, oh, I'm, I sound better singing what these people are doing because they're great songwriters or great animators than I do drawing whatever is in my head or singing or writing whatever's in my head. And so a lot of my creative energy has been spent imitating and it's, yeah, what were you? Yeah, no, I was just gonna say, and it's, um, it's really daunting and also really rewarding to come out and start to explore what native creative energy feels like or looks like to me I actually think that they are they are one and the same because I think so much when you start out I think you're only imitating and I think your failure to copy wholeheartedly is what ends up making something unique or let's stick with music like if you love Cerberellis and you love Linda Ronstadt your failure to become both of those is going to come together and and spit something out Hmm. that is your influences are in there subconsciously and Cerebrellis is her inability to be, I don't know, Tori Amos or Sarah McLaughlin, you know? So yeah, I think that's like... a beautiful perspective, actually. That's, I think that's... But what, what, the reason I ask the question is because I have always been so interested with people becoming really good at the thing that is not their profession because it's not their profession. Mm-hmm. Which is so... Because you do it fearlessly... And for love of it... Yes, there's this autotelic experience that you have where... Autotelic, Autotelic meaning just like this where there's no external reward. You work to make money so that you ultimately don't need to work anymore. You work out to have a better body. That's what What's I the mean. opposite of autotelic? Exotelic. exotelic. So exotelic being the thing that... Externally. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah, I'm sorry, I should clarify what that is. So, so yeah, no, I if you just autotelic. love, like having sex is probably the most universal autotelic experience. You just enjoy the act of having sex. But I also appreciate the feedback after when they're like, that was the best ever. For sure, for sure, for sure. But that's not the only reward. That's obviously, it's a byproduct of it, which is great. But there is this unique euphoria you get from finding something that you love to do just within the confines of doing it. Mm-hmm. Rock climbers always talk about this feeling that they get of like, doesn't matter, like no notoriety or prize will ever come close to the feeling they get when they're just taking on a mountain that is a little too hard. Mm. That you just, and, but everything that you get into as a kid 
is an autotelic experience because you don't know what the rewards, you don't know that you could be rewarded for writing a song when you're a kid, you just do it. Mm -hmm. And now you have this incredible job and you do it so well. And like for me as a musician, because my job is to be a musician, it's very easy for me to lose that experience that like, and that's why I've taken to things like podcasting and to building this like love tap horn that I'm building. Right. Did I tell you about that? I so you did. I didn't know you were building it. Though. Yeah, yeah. I'm building this horn that, like, oh, a friendly so horn. About that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is I've now. I've told so many people about that idea. I think it's great. It's now back, like, in production now. So I've spent like twelve hundred dollars <laughs> yes. building this thing, and we're building a prototype. I, I, it's been on the on the back burner for a while, but now it's. Well, let's I'm, talk I'm about that after. Yeah, this, yeah. Okay, I have some so ideas. we'll talk about that. Yeah, I would love some <laughs> ideas from especially you, but. The reason I'm ta- I've realized the reason I'm taken to these things is because it's something that I have genuinely no expectation for. I don't know that they'll become big. I don't know that they're this podcast. I don't know how many people are ever going to listen to it, but it's just I genuinely just enjoy this experience right now. And the minute that this podcast becomes or, or whatever I do becomes about something bigger, uh, wow, that would be a great thing. I think I'm going to lose something and I think I might be losing that with music and I think I'm trying to find it again. So I'm so excited for you because you still might be in that space in music where you just love it like a child and it doesn't, it's less about a career. And obviously, and I'm going to say this before this thing starts, but we met on American Idol. So obviously you're no stranger to singing. You know what I mean? You're not like a, you're not just like a sing in the shower. Like you've taken it seriously. Relatively. Um, relatively seriously, you know, but uh, so, so, I mean, I guess that's why I was asking is if you feel like you're harder on yourself with music than you are with your job, because it's, I'm it's, more afraid of trying singing and failing than I am of any other job I've ever had and failing. Mm. Um, I don't know if that means I'm harder on myself, but it certainly means I'm more tentative. Um, yeah. like with, with Riot, the fear has never been this isn't going to work and therefore, like, I'm done being an entrepreneur or I'm done in media or I'm done yeah. in journalism or whatever. But with singing, like, it's just me. And it's so yeah. intrinsically linked to my being and my identity yeah. that if it doesn't work, it feels like a personal failure more so than something I've created or some job that I have that someone else yeah, has created. Yeah, you're part of an ecosystem. Yeah. Yeah, and I've never... Like, even though I feel like my my brand is, at this point, inextricably linked from Riot in some ways because I've sure. been there since its inception and I'm very passionate about it, singing is still all... And I will have collaborators. And, and I think part of the reason I want to collaborate with people musically is because, A, in everything I do in my life, I want to surround myself with people that are more talented and smarter than I am. Yeah because I think it'll make me better, but also because I want to give people reason to have skin in the game when I, whenever I do put out music. It's like, oh, if we do a song together, like yeah. you're going to be really excited to share it with your friends too, right. hopefully. Right. Um, and so I'm excited about involving all these people that are more talented and creative than me in my process. Yeah. But I'm also really scared of that because like... Yeah. I don't have... Like, I've never really pushed myself out of my comfort zone too far singing. Yeah. I've always been like, okay, even if I'm, like, drunk or, like, <laughs> you know, haven't warmed up or it's, it's five in the morning and I sing, like, still it's going to be pretty good. 
Yeah. But yeah, yeah, yeah. writing, I have no idea. And like but the type of stuff I'm starting to create. You're it's different scary. because you're an artist. Like for me, I identify mostly as a writer, less mm-hmm. as an artist. I used to identify as, a, as an artist. I'm mostly a writer right now. So for me to walk into a room with other writers, I feel like I need to bring writing to the table mm-hmm. where you, as an artist, are expected to bring your voice to the table. You know, that, like when I write with our, when I work with artists that have never written before, for me, that's what I get out of it is I'm like, you have a voice, you have, you have a vehicle of honesty that if I sang this song, I wouldn't believe it. You know, I think especially in music, the messenger mm-hmm. is as important as the message itself, if not more yeah, important. I've, I've been going through this exercise actually of like listening to my favorite songs and deconstructing them from yeah. like the vocal performance to the lyrics to the production yes. and then anything else and yeah. as I go through I realize that 99% of the time I actually don't listen to the lyrics the first few times yep. I hear a song yeah. and what it is that draws me in is the production yeah. and, the vocal performance, and the vocal performance much more so than the lyrics so but much. then what pushes it over the edge usually is the fact that the lyrics are also relatable yes. or that yes. they're transcendent or whatever but I think you're right that like the, the piece for me that I'm exploring and having a really or the two pieces that I'm exploring and having a good time exploring one is the lyric writing and yeah. you know the first couple songs that I've written are like so bad I'm like well, you know well, I wrote them in a on. state what do you of, mean by bad <laughs> I'll show them to you and you can tell me <laughs> but like they're just they're just corny and like they're written from a place of you know it was like wallowing in bed in the first weekend after if like my honest, heartbreak then they're not bad and they're just they're just not Artistic. They're honest, but they're not. They, Hold I don't on. use. I want, I want to talk about this for a second, for <laughs> okay. a second, because this is such a big deal to me. Because when people, because I think a lot of people get harsh on themselves, they go, "This is bad." Because many people do. They go, they sit down and go, "I'm going to write a song," and because I'm writing a song, I need it to be eloquent. So they <laughs> write, and then it comes off really cheesy. But I think, I think the cheesiest stuff is when you're trying to use a language that you don't actually use. Because then what was a pure and beautiful little sentiment uh, gets diluted sometimes, you know, with overly clever metaphors, which I'm all for a metaphor. (laughs) But sometimes I miss you is a way less cheesy thing to say than I see your face in the stars or something. Yeah. You know, so I'm just curious what your definition of bad is. Well, we can, we can talk about it yeah. after this. I'll show you because I'm interested <laughs> to deconstruct it with you. But the second piece, and this is actually really interesting for me as a singer, yeah. is I've started working with um, the guys that I'm working with are called Braves. They're this, oh, uh, cool. this these two brothers from Australia and a producer named Johnny from Seattle, actually. And I'm really excited about them all because they're incredibly talented in their own right. But um, yeah. Toral, who's the, the main singer, vocalist, has been doing these sort of vocal trainings and voice yeah. therapy sessions with people all around the world for years and years no and way. years. And he, we did this exercise the other day where he had me sing for him after a, a while of like just sort of feeling and like being present and like not over intellectualizing anything, sing. And all I was told to think about while I was singing was how it felt to be singing yeah. and how the notes felt in my mouth and like what it was like to have, be a mind behind this face mm-hmm. and like mm-hmm. what my hands were doing yes. and fingers were doing. And it was a completely different performance experience than I've ever had because always when I'm sitting in here recording with you, I'm thinking, am I hitting this note? Is it in tune? Like I'm not having the experience of singing in my body. I'm I'm having the experience of singing in my head. Exotelically. You're thinking like, what's this going to be? Yeah. 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 And so 
I'm so excited about starting to I love it. explore I love it. what I sound like when I'm not thinking about what I sound like. Yes, yes. And I think that's when, I mean, look, Dylan, I, I, I reference Dylan a lot because I just think he's like one of the perfect examples Dylan, of people. Dylan, Joplin. Yeah, like, who they just, Hendrix, they like were just, any of them. Um, just, they have something to say and they're going to fucking say it. And they don't care whether they sound like a frog or not. And those are the most, like, I'm, I don't like singers anymore. I like, I put singers and artists in different categories now. Yeah. I think an artist emotes and I think a singer sings. sings. And that's, I'm not hating on anyone like Adele and Sinatra. I mean, these are all Whitney Houston. They're unbelievable singers. But they're for artists. For sure. But they're also artists. And there's a, there's a difference. And I think that you can sound like Bob Dylan and you can sound like Whitney Houston and you could still be an artist. Mm -hmm. But I've also heard so many singers that sing really well but I don't believe them. Yeah. There's something dishonest about the way they sing. That's how I feel about a lot of American Idol contestants, to be honest. Mm -hmm. You know, like they're flailing their voices around like it's a weapon. And when they're singing the words, I miss you, all I'm hearing or all I'm feeling is look at how great of a singer I am. And so like, yeah. I, yeah. And I guess I literally up until this week have thought that the only vehicle for honesty as a performer is if you're writing your own material. Yeah. Or that's been what I put on myself as like, yeah. this is well, the Well, at threshold. least if you're a part of shaping it, it yeah. has to come, yeah. Totally. 100%, 100%. But I do think that you can have an honest performance even if the lyrics aren't yours. Yeah, um, agreed. If but you I, connect with it, but you I find do, you connect with it. I do want to have the opportunity to experience both. So that's what I'm working <laughs> towards. <laughs> that's so awesome. So you're, so... So you are finding time to do this stuff. You are finding time to like... Now that I'm acquired and single, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I have so right. much fucking time. That's amazing. It's amazing. Yet this next, the next 14 days of your life, you're not going to be in any city for more than a couple <laughs> Three days, days at a time. Yeah. Four yeah. days. Yeah. No, I mean, that's... I'm loving the travel right now. I have, you still like traveling? How long? You've been traveling like this for a year. Yeah, about a year. You're not I mean, tired I've been, of it. No, I've been on like... I will have been on four continents in three months. It's uh, <laughs> incredible. <laughs> once, so you're, once I go to Rio. I mean, is your, your body's adjusted? You're cool with yeah. your body's like, all right, we're doing this now. Yeah. Just, it's, yeah. I, I'm pretty good at sleeping on planes. I have global yeah. entry, so the airport yeah. experience isn't usually horrific. Yeah, um, yeah. And I'm just getting the opportunity to go to amazing places, right? Like if I was having to go to, I don't know, uh, Tulsa every other week, it might be a different sort of experience but yeah. I'm going to like Hong Kong and Dublin and Rio and New York so and San Francisco cool. and Seattle so and fucking cool it's amazing I, I so badly travel I think is the one thing where I'm looking for an excuse to do it more not an excuse I'm just looking for I think a lot of us have this issue with travel is like if your job doesn't tell you to travel then you just won't mm -hmm. or you feel like you are not in the place in your life to travel where I yeah. think you're very lucky that you're your job. I mean, I doubt you would travel this much, right? If your, uh, <laughs> if your job didn't not demand this it. much. No. Yeah, yeah. But I. But I've also. But you've always been a traveler. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I never really think about geographic distance as a barrier it's to not. experience. Because it's, it's not. Like literally, you're just a couple hours and a couple hundred dollars yes. away from almost anywhere you'd want to go. The whole world is a backyard. Now. Totally. And yeah. Like globe you know carbon footprint notwithstanding like there's yeah there's no reason to not do that if you want to and like i think having an excuse makes sense like i always I, want an excuse to go somewhere so i use like oh weddings or birthdays or yeah. work or a concert or whatever to to have that be my excuse but like 
you know, I think anywhere you want to go, you could find an excuse to have to be there, whether it's a music festival or yeah. something like the fucking Olympics or just like you have a friend who also wants to go visit this place and you both have a weekend free. I think, well, I think you hit on the head when you said really want to, because I think a lot of us say we want to travel, mm-hmm. but if we really did want to, then we would, mm-hmm. because you realize if you have, you don't even need that much money. There's a book called Vagabonding all about how little money it actually takes to totally. travel. But I think most of us say we want to, and we really, we don't really, really, really want to. Yeah. And I, I think that's an interesting point that can be translated into relationship yeah. stuff too, where like yeah. anything you really want, I think you'll make happen. And, you know, in my last relationship, there were a lot of times where he would be like, you know, he made that point to me where he was like, if you wanted to talk to me every night before you went to bed, like you would call me. Yeah. Like if you wanted to talk to me throughout the day, you'd be texting me. And I was like, no, I'm just like so busy. Like I don't even think about it. But like, sure enough, the next relationship, it was like, all I wanted to do was like be in contact with this person. And like, yeah, like if you really want something, like when there's a will, there's a way. Yeah. And so that's also how I've felt with singing for years and years where I'm like, do I actually really want this? Mm Because I'm not doing it. Yeah. And like, we've had fits and starts too. Yeah. And it's like, do I actually really want it? And like, I know I have wanted it, but like, there's also, like, it probably wouldn't have even happened this way if I hadn't met these people who like sort of enabled me to do it. Like they gave me the excuse. They put the parameters around it. Yeah. And, um. Well, finding, again, it goes back to that whole flow thing. I think finding circumstances where you feel challenged, but you see progress, that excites you and makes you want to pursue it. So like when you're on your own without these guys, it's I'm just such progress. a yeah. giant mountain. Yeah. You're just standing at the foot of it going, well, fuck, no, right. I'm not, no. Like you're too tired. But then when someone, it can be your Sherpa, then you do get excited and there is like this. It's like setting yourself up to get positive feedback from it. Yes. Sort of yes. sometimes is required, right? Whether that's like being open to a relationship with someone or whether that's like building a structure of support. I mean, that does mean sometimes going into a writing room and being the best writer in the room. Yeah. You know, sometimes... Or going into a writing room and being the worst writer in the room. Like, I think by the same token, like that's the reason I sort of seek out having at any given time both mentors and mentees. Yes. Because it keeps you very... Keeps you confident. Confident. And keeps you learning. And humble. Yeah. That dance is like one of the hardest dances to do, I think, with any career. You know what I mean? And I think you're, I mean, the way you're doing it is like so graceful. I mean, the way you're doing it with, no, because you're doing it on, you're just doing so much that it's hard to like look at someone like you and go like, how is she not either insane or heartless? You know what I mean? Like, you know what I mean? It's hard. It's hard. Yeah, Yeah. that's true. I don't know that you're not insane. So drawing and music, like what, what, I, I was curious what, what kinds of other things you're into, you're super into right now that have nothing to do with your career. Um, I have nothing to do with my career. That's actually um, a silly question because I think. Sort of everything feels like it has to do. Yeah. Or like my career yeah. has to do with everything. Everything has yeah. to do with, like it's all part of the puzzle. I think yeah. that I'm really interested in various methods of truth seeking right now. Okay. I'm trying Boom. to figure out a way of this describing this. This is the goal this. I was looking for. I'm trying to figure out how to describe this truth. process without making it seem like, A, I'm like about to become some like born again Christian, <laughs> <laughs> or B, like sounding like a complete hippie commune. Are you just wondering why you're here kind of thing, the mm, purpose of it all? It's less that, and it's more like, okay. There are so many 
people out there that have developed like rules to live by including me, right? I did it as sort of like an atheistic agnostic Jew. I still have like rules to live by sort of generally. Yeah. Um, and one of those rules to live by is like nothing is sacred and like everything is sort of exists in this gray area and like yeah. there really aren't any... Uh, Givens other than like the uh, laws of physics. Sure, yeah. 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 Um, and I think that... I'm really interested in reading things, talking to people, experiencing things that are going to let me accumulate enough perspectives to gain real wisdom. And I think that that is what wisdom is more and more that like, it's an accumulation of perspectives that you can call upon in any situation that will, that will guide your behavior. Um, and so I'm, you know, for instance, like I'm, I've seen like a couple tarot card readers to like figure out what that is. And mm. what I've noticed about myself in those interactions is yeah. I also like tarot card readers, like ther- like alternative therapy, different things. Cause I yeah. more or less want to just see how I react in those instances. And what yeah. I've learned is one, if the person, if I don't think the person's smarter than me, I'm not going to listen to anything. They yeah. Have to yeah, say. yeah. And like, it, and that's literally just a matter of like processing power. It's sure, not like, sure. are, do they ha- have a degree? Do they like, you know, yeah. are they well read? It's like, is there processing power yeah. where it needs to be? I think to, yeah. to be a master of this craft of theirs. Yes. Um, and then, you know, I'm reading about Kabbalah and I think that's like a really interesting, you mm, know, people think of it as Jewish okay. mysticism, but it sort of has more similarities to like relativity theory and like yeah, it's physics. Yeah, like one of the oldest, yeah. Super old, but I knew Not nothing about oldest. it. And this yeah. came out of a recommendation of a friend of mine. And like, yeah. you know, the, the thing that I love the most about it is the very first rule of the Kabbalah is like, do not believe what you read, test it. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, Amen. great. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I'm very, basically I'm very interested in figuring out what spirituality, if anything, is going to mean in my life. And, um, and I don't think that's religious. Cause I think that like religion is what happens when spirituality is mixed with ego. Yeah. And so I'm trying to do an egoless or as egoless as possible search of different methods of truth seeking within certain brands or types Girl, of spirituality. Speaking my language, speaking my language here. What was the first question? What did you ask me? (laughs) That was, no, that, that, I mean, honestly, like, I just, Oh, what am I doing creatively? I just, because, you know, I, I I tend to think that some of us are more primed than others to have the freedom, uh, and by freedom, I don't mean judicially, I mean freedom within the confines of our own mind, to even think about this stuff in the first place. And I think you need not look any further than your very own um, film, Body Team 12, to realize how much we overlook how lucky we are to be able to even think about stuff like this. Mm-hmm. Something I read this morning that was super, super interesting is the phases of thinking. So on a very limbic level, we just need to survive. So if your life is in a situation where you're just fighting for survival, say like a lot of homeless people or a prisoner in Guantanamo Bay, mm-hmm. you don't get to the next gear level. shift yeah. to the next, exactly. Uh, and then once you're confident that you have your survival basics down, um, you start taking that state of being for granted, which, I mean, we all do at like a very early age, but you kind of graduate to this next level of consciousness, which is that you're in a society and in a system that you can contribute to, and you start thinking, how do I fit into this system, et cetera, et cetera. 
And the next level is this is very. I'm simplifying this heavily. Yeah, and this is this comes out a lot in different things that I'm reading about. Exactly, right? like exactly. Levels of consciousness yeah, yeah. or levels of exactly. Or and then you get to this level of being so confident within society that you want to become better than society, and you want to be the best rather than just contribute, et cetera, et cetera. And 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 we oscillate, you know, uh, uh, among these phases throughout our entire lives. I think, but uh, I think eventually when you trace that line all the way down you get to this really interesting place where you almost arrive back at the most basic and simple kind of kind of a nihilistic view which is that you know really we're all just a bunch of little twigs floating around on this giant river or whatever just looking to you know enjoy the ride and contribute goodness to the world um but i think a lot of people get trapped in that gear before that that gear of individualism which not surprisingly, it tends to be where most people find their material success. And so I feel like many of our colleagues and many rather elite people live and die never looking for anything beyond that way of thinking because that way of thinking uh, has rewarded them handsomely, you know? So I don't know. I'm not saying people shouldn't strive to succeed, obviously, but sometimes I just love the idea of surrendering to this like uh, not God I don't like the word God because there's no there's no judgment about it um, I just think sometimes it's fun to just realize that nothing fucking matters <laughs> so weird but I have this like no, right don't even get me started about like how we're probably living in a computer simulation and like oh, God whole... is a supercomputer did you hear like Elon like... Musk talk about that yeah it's like prove we're not <laughs> Go yeah, for it. yeah. Well, no, you can't. You, know? you can't prove that we're not. That's the thing. But, I, but even even if we're not living in a simulation, I think that you know, even Steve Jobs contributed nothing to the cosmos. You know what I mean? Mm. Ultimately, but it's a silly it's a silly topic to dwell on because I mean he contributed tremendously to humankind, which matters far more. But it's humbling, like it's humbling sometimes when you're stressed to sit there for a minute and just go. We're, how are we not all just a bunch of kids farting around on a merry-go-round, not really contributing anything to this giant fucking universe? But it's also certainly no reason not to try. Yeah, no, but I didn't mean it like that. For me, yeah. like what the reason for the for the search is is out of like a very basic realization of yeah. like the best version of me is enough. Yeah. For yeah. everyone around me to be happy and to love me and like if what I'm looking for is love first and foremost then yeah. like if I'm the best version of me I'm gonna have that everywhere is that what you're looking for love of course yeah that's like the most yeah it's yeah uh, but not just romantic love like yeah. love with yeah. like people that just matter to me and like I want them to feel like I love them and I want to feel like they love me and that's that's yeah. that's a very motivating thing for me but I also like when I notice little sort of like ugly instincts in me or insecurities that I don't even identify yeah. as insecurities because like I have no practice in that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then they bubble up and come out in really weird ways. Then, um, you know, I think that it's really like thinking about the universe and thinking about all that is great, but looking inwards for me is starting to be really yeah. interesting yeah. and putting yeah. that in context of everything else that's happening. Yeah. And like, yeah. how do I just make sure that, the impact that I'm having is a positive one everywhere I go. Do you think that looking for love... Well, let me ask you this. I'm sure you want to leave a legacy here after you're gone. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's a lot of our motivation to, to do shit 
is just to leave something here and make something immortal. Do you think that that can get in the way of love sometimes, though? If the ultimate goal is love... I think love can get in the way of that. <laughs> love does get in the way of that, yeah, for sure. Because that's what I was saying before. Like, it's a demotivating thing for me. Like, I'd rather, like, yeah. lie in bed in someone's arms for, like, a day yeah. than go and paint or write or whatever. Sure, and yeah. I think that there's, that you know, there's a question to be asked of, like, would we have, like, planes and trains and computers mm, and yeah. cell phones if we were always besotted? Yeah. And I don't know that we would. The, um, honestly, one of the best quotes I've ever heard, you told it to me. I think it was by Emily E.B. White. E.B. White, yeah. I wake up in the morning torn yes. between a desire to improve I've the never world forgotten and... that quote since you told it to me. I'm sorry, I cut you off. The quote, the quote is, I wake up in the morning torn between the desire to improve the world and to enjoy it. Yeah. And improving the world can mean a lot of things, I think, in that quote where it's like improving the world through kindness or through philanthropy or through creating art. Yeah. And so I just think, you know, more and more I think you don't necessarily have to choose always. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because, I mean, you do have to choose how you're spending your time. Like, your time is zero sum, but, like, your kindness yeah. and your compassion is not. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so as long as all of your time is being spent in a way that's creative and compassionate yeah. and kind, then, like, you are improving the world and you are enjoying the world. So that's beautifully said, beautifully said. But we can sit here and we can talk about this, right? But then at the end of the day, you get in your car and you go and you live your life and you have your day, you, day I get in your car and you drive me home. And I drive you home. <laughs> but like, how often are you actually pursuing these things every day when you're not thinking about them and you're not focusing on them? Oh. Is that a timer? I set an alarm so that you can get back in time. Cool, thank um, you. Okay, so I'll, just, I'll leave you with this question. Mm -hmm. What kind of things do you do and do you think other people can do to turn compassion into a habit? And to actually want to pursue, so you get... I got one of these fucking cards the other day. Someone, uh, someone bought me a Starbucks in line. And it was like a, one of those acts of kindness, pass it on cards. Yeah. And I was like, that's great. So now I have... And they gave me the card. They're like, I bought your Starbucks. Take this card. And now you do something nice for somebody and give them the card. And I was like, that's beautiful. But I shouldn't need a card to want to do that. The bigger question for me became, what can I do to always be thinking about this shit and to actually practice it every day and not just only when I'm a guest on someone's podcast or when I'm, when I'm talking about it with people or going to a seminar about kindness or something like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm not saying you do that. I'm saying how do you keep it's in check every day? It's hard to remember to do it if it's not a habit. Um, and I think that it goes back to the, the feedback mechanisms yeah. that are in place. And, like, no one would do philanthropy if it didn't feel good. Yeah. And no one would, uh, like, volunteer if it didn't make them feel good. Yeah. Like, yeah. everything is done to make yourself happy, I yeah. think. And if something's not making you happy, like, probably don't do it anymore. <laughs> right. um, but... You know, my friend, like, a couple months ago called me up because the guy that I was seeing called me up out of the blue, and he was like, I, you know, just found out I didn't get this audition that I thought I did really well on. It was a part that I really wanted. Like, Acting? Yeah. Um, and okay. he was like, I'm just really upset about it, and, like, I'm sorry yeah. for calling you and burdening you with it, but I just felt like I wanted to talk to someone about it and vent about it. And, like, 
I was flattered that he reached out to me about it um, and that I was given the opportunity to try and figure out how to get him to a happier place, right? And my oh, I'm initial sorry. he was a, he, he was like yeah oh, yeah not not me. Oh, so he okay. called me. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Cuz he hadn't gotten this audition and my first instinct was to tell him to just go and do something for someone. Like something mm. nice for someone that like you don't have to do. And it could yeah. be like your mom, it could be like the homeless guy you give a meal to, it could be you, like go online and make a donation to some GoFundMe, like yeah. any anything that gets you outside of yourself for a minute. Yeah. And I think that this is so important to like set time aside to proactively have experiences that make you feel good because they take you out of yourself and give you a perspective on the scope and scale of your own problems. Yeah. So like, you know, for instance, I went down to Tijuana a little while ago with a girlfriend of mine who has this jewelry line that raises money for an orphanage in Tijuana. And so we drove down there to do a drop and you go and you see these kids and this sounds like, cliche at this point but like you see these kids who literally have like four things to their name they've grown up in bunk beds for their entire adolescence with like maybe their mom like dropping off a new half brother every year or whatever it is and like they're happy and they're playing and they're dancing around and like if those kids problems are actually on like a very different scope and scale than mine but they feel things the same way I do all of a sudden it just like makes you grateful and makes you appreciative and like it makes you feel good to give back and so like I just encourage everyone that I know to like look for opportunities to do that not because they're being given a card the card isn't what's gonna make you feel good the card is a reminder to do something that's gonna make you feel good and so whatever you have to do like put on a sticky on your computer like give back yeah and whatever giving back means to you or like share and whatever sharing means to you um I think that creating those reminders for yourself can only improve your state of mind. Yeah. Wow. That's it's genuinely the best advice you could give somebody. I mean, I'm going to start doing that all the time now. Because it's, it's counterintuitive. You know, most of us would say something like, oh, don't worry about it. It's not your fault. Or go do something for yourself. Or like, go, go pamper something. yourself. Right, exactly. Or go, right. like, buy yourself something. Right. Right. right, right. Which I think is, like, a natural thing to want to do because you're fulfilling a desire then like oh my yeah. desire is to have this thing and so I'm going to buy it for myself but if your right. desire is to be happy right then you're going to have to tap into something less temporary yeah <laughs> amen molly shit i think that's as good a send off as it gets yeah <laughs> I mean, that's I'm great glad we finally did this <laughs> because yeah me too like i i uh i don't know that's something that i struggle with and i think a lot of people struggle with is uh, finding a way to remember to be present and proactive every day, you know, when it comes to kindness. I think um, being present isn't really the hard part, is it? It's the remembering. It's funny, like, like, like take meditation. I don't, I don't know if you meditate. Mm-hmm, but if, you, if you're one of those people that, that meditates every day, a lot of people meditate every day, and they go, okay, I've logged my meditation time, mm-hmm. as if it were some, like, uh, like, I've earned my little gold star for awareness today. So I don't need to practice it the rest of the day now because tomorrow morning I'm going to meditate. And it's like, it's defeating the entire purpose. Totally. (laughs) But that's such a hard thing to do is to live a lifestyle where you're actually doing the things that you keep preaching. Yeah. And I'm fortunate to have a job that like lets me give back on sort of a regular basis. But I also recognize that like what's going to make you feel good, like your 
method of giving back is going to differ from mine. It's going to differ from your mom and your friends. And like, that's okay. Like you don't have to feel bad if like going and volunteering at the soup kitchen doesn't make you feel happy. Yeah. And it does make me feel happy. Like you're going to find something that does and it's working with autistic kids and doing music with them. Like, you know, there's, there's plenty of things in your skill set and in your experiences that are going to shape what feels best as far as giving yes. back. And I just encourage everyone to find what that thing is for them. But I think what a lot of people don't understand is that you like you could because you're part of a huge philanthropic machine. You could be a part of that machine and still be a dick. Totally. In yeah. person. And yeah. you could you could be like the most cold-hearted person on earth. Mm-hmm. I think the work you do to be a kind and compassionate person and be proactively compassionate every day is maybe reminded by your job, but I don't think that's because of your job. I think it's something you need to do. I don't think people need to go, oh, I mean, I, if I had a job like hers, I would be more compassionate. You yeah, know I, mean? I think there are assholes that work in nonprofit space Absolutely. as much as there are assholes Absolutely. that work for big corporations. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's about how well do you translate, like the feedback and the lessons that you're getting from sort of bigger picture stuff into smaller picture yeah. behaviors. Well, I'm glad you're doing all this shit, Molly. Me too. <laughs> Fucking love you. Love Fucking you too. Love you. <laughs>